If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. As a church family, we believe that Scripture is divine and God-breathed and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so this word today has the power and the authority to reach to those darkest places of our souls. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with each other in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Uh, To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, we've been uh, in a series where we've been asking this big question, what is the church? And um, I, I really think it's a, a very important series for our church. It's an important thing for us to think about. I think there's a lot of people, as I said last week, that have been a part of churches. Maybe you've been in church for a long time, uh, but it's not something you've ever thought deeply about. Uh, a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, I, I kind of gave the, the history of modern evangelicalism and uh, talked about these, these big questions, who is Jesus and, and what is the church? And, and, and we talked about in the 20th century, there was in so many ways this battle to, for the answer to that question, who is Jesus? How do we understand Jesus? Can we, can we trust what Jesus has revealed in his word or, or can't we? Uh, and so the, this, this movement that, that we know as the evangelical movement was really, um, and I'm so grateful for so many of these leaders, it was really a, a movement to get that answer right. Who is Jesus? Uh, but because so many of the leaders um, of that movement, people like 
Harold Ockengay and Billy Graham and Elizabeth Elliot and Bill Bright, people that I'm very, very grateful for, but because they, um, because they weren't really church ministers, they were more parachurch organizational leaders, while they were answering the question, who is Jesus, they, they never really answered the question, what is the church? And so a lot of churches that became known as evangelical churches, rather than being modeled after what we might see as a biblical ecclesiology or a biblical church, really kind of modeled themselves after these parachurch ministries that were giving so much of the leadership to the evangelical movement. So for example, the, the, these churches became very centered oftentimes on a very charismatic leader, like these evangelical movements that were really defining the era. They uh, were more centered on the event, on the gathering of the church than they were on really the body or an understanding of who is the church. Uh, The church uh, through the 20th century in many ways became less something that you were a part of and more something that you attended. Uh, People would even go from saying, in fact, in Atlanta, you know, you ask people about church, they, 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 they rarely say, I am a member of such and such a church. They're more likely to say, I attend such and such a church, or I go to such and such a church. Um, it, it, even beyond that, it went from beyond the gathering, oftentimes to people identifying their church experience uh, with a, a sermon or the, or the preacher that they like to listen to. So a lot of times we ask people about church, they say, I go to so-and-so's church, right? It's not a, a body or even uh, a gathering. It's actually the, the, the actual preacher that is preaching, or I go to so-and-so's church. It, it became more of a product than a body. It, it, the product was a useful sermon. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of times I'll have conversations with friends of mine who are pastors. And again, these are good and faithful brothers, and I, I mean no disrespect to them, but I'll say, you know, what's going on? How's things at, at your church? How's things among your church? And they'll say, this is, I, I hear this often. They'll say, well, our attendance is down, but our live stream is up and our giving is up. In other words, it's as if they're saying, and I don't mean disrespect, but you can just kind of see how out of whack we've gotten. You know, business is good. People don't really shop in our stores anymore, but they're still shopping online. They're still making use of the products that we offer. And this is often followed by people saying something like, we're just trying to think of new ways to do church. Again, I'd be careful here because I don't mean in any way ill will toward these brothers that, that talk this way or think this way. In so many ways, they're more godly than I am. But I can't help but be a part of these conversations and think to myself, I don't know if this is what the apostle Paul had in mind. You know? And maybe more importantly, it was Jesus when he was setting out to build his church. I don't know if this is what he had in mind, is, is the church simply an exchange of products or is it something different? And, and as we've been saying over these few weeks, the, the New Testament word for church, where we get the idea from church, the Greek word that it's being translated into church is the Greek ekklesia. And, and this idea of ekklesia, it's primarily focused not on a, an event or on a building or on a leader, but Primarily, it's focused on a people, a a people who have been called out by God to love and to serve God, but also to love and to serve one another. A people called out. The church is primarily 
a people. The church is more about something that you are and less about something that you go to. The church is primarily about a people that you are a part of, less about a product that you get. And so as we've been defining, answering this big question, what is the church? We've, we've been looking at it under four big headings, or we're going to look at it under four big headings. Last week, we said that first, we are a people who believe. The reason that we have been called out, the reason that we have been gathered together as a people is that we believe something. We confess something. Our lives are anchored somewhere, right? We, we believe that the truth is not just whatever is popular at the time. Truth is not just something that the powerful people have a hold of. No, we are anchored into what we believe is a transcendent truth, a eternal anchor, the anchor of God and his word. We have been called out by a living word who, a living God rather, who speaks to us in his living word. And because of this, as we said last week, we've entered into a new story. We've, we've, we've taken on a new identity where, we, where we're learning as a church, as a people to obey and to follow everything that Jesus has commanded. So we're not just the people who believe. We're also, and this is what we're gonna be looking at this week. We're also a people who attest to that belief. We are a people whose lives line up with what we believe. We're a people who are changed because of what we believe. You know, I was, I was having lunch this week with a guy who he said, you know, <clears throat> he's kind of new to the faith. He was just asking me, he said, I, it kind of bothers me that, you know, Christians believe that somebody could kind of live their whole life uh, in sin and rebellion against God. And then at the very end, pray a prayer and go to heaven. And I said, well, Christians don't really believe that. Now, Christians do believe that you can be saved late in life, but we don't believe that you're saved just by doing something mechanical like praying a prayer. No, you're saved when you meet the living God, when you see who you are compared to him, right? when you see your need of salvation, when you see your brokenness before God's holiness. You're saved when you realize that that same God who should condemn you actually loves you. It actually pursued you in Christ and actually made a way for your forgiveness in Jesus. And if that happens to you, if you realize that and see that that same God has a plan for your life and loves you and is calling you to be a part of his kingdom, if that happens to you, that, is a, that, that totally shifts you. It totally changes you. It's transformative. It, it, Christianity is so much more about something that happens internally than something that happens externally. It's more about what happens in your heart. Jesus, of course, even says in Matthew 7, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, the one whose heart is aligned with my Father, the one who has met God, the one who knows God and loves God and realizes that, that God has made a way for us in Christ through his own Son on the cross. When that happens to you, it overwhelms you. It changes you. It moves you. It, it reorients your life. And this is a great place for us to kind of pick up with our text today because Paul in Ephesians 3 is coming out of an explanation of this as he moves into Ephesians 4. Ephesians 3 ends with one of my favorite prayers in all of scripture. Paul is praying for the Ephesians that they would have the strength to comprehend. I love this prayer. He's not praying that they, um, 
he's not praying that, that God would love them. No, he's, he's praying that they would actually have the strength to comprehend how much God does love them. That they would be able to comprehend how much God actually loves them. You know that moment where you kind of get the strength to comprehend something? This is not in my notes, but I was just thinking about it. Last night, we went to a wedding and paid, and, and I was standing there with Rainer. Rainer came along, my three-year-old, and we were watching the first dance of the couple. So this is probably the first time Rainer's ever watched a first dance before, you know. And he was standing there, and he goes, when you, did you and mama do that? You know. And it was cool. It was like, he's, he's comprehending, oh, you're married. Like, some place, yeah, like, some place in time you did this thing and you love mama like this and, and y'all had a wedding dress. So, he, but before three years old, he's only now gotten to the point where he has the strength to comprehend what marriage is, right? And he's just starting to obviously scratch the surface as a three-year-old. But he now has the strength to comprehend. This is what Paul's praying for the Ephesians. He's saying, look, I want you to have the strength to comprehend. I want you to be at least three years old in your faith so that you can understand how high and how deep and how wide God's love is for you. And I love the word he used, strength to comprehend there is actually the Greek katalambano, which literally means to ambush. Basically, he's saying, I want God's love to tackle you. I want God's love to catch you off guard and overwhelm you to where you're so moved by it and changed by it and and reoriented by it that your, your whole life is different. We're not just people who believe. We're people who've been reoriented because of what we believe, because of what God has done for us. And therefore, there's, there's three things that he then kind of goes into that I think are really helpful to us as we're going to talk about how we live out these things. And that is the direction of the church, the way of the church, and the goal of the church. So the direction of the church if you're here with us last week, we, we talked about the difference between a product-centered faith, and I was referencing this earlier, a product-centered faith and a people-centered faith. Again, a lot of folks in Atlanta kind of understand this product-centered faith. I get my Bible study from here. I get, you know, I like music from here. I like, you know, the, the teaching from here. There's this kind of product-centered ideology. And again, the, the, you can learn a lot about the Lord in a product-centered faith. The problem is you're always the center, you're always the boss, right? The customer's always right. You know, if the product isn't good, I'll just go get a new one. Um, how can this serve me? How can this serve my spiritual needs? But I think if you, if you look here, what we see when it's describing the direction of the church, it's less of a direction of products that are kind of serving me and my spirituality. And actually it's something very different. And Matt just prayed through this. Look at verse one again. It says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, right? So in light of this katalambano, in, in light of God's love tackling you, this is how you're supposed to live now with all humility, gentleness, and patience. I've been thinking about these three words a lot this week, humility, gentleness, and patience. What is humility, right? Yeah, I love C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, Right? I think, I think oftentimes we, we wrongly understand humility as to be kind of self-deprecating, right? But he's saying, no, but the real, the real humble person is not like talking about how weak they are all the time. No, the real, the real humble person is just not thinking about themselves all the time. 
Yeah, Tim Keller has this great little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, right? The, the, the truly humble person has kind of, they kind of forget about themselves, right? That, that's, that's the sign of humility, that you're actually thinking about others more often than you are yourself. You're actually thinking about God, his kingdom, his people, more often, more regularly than you are yourself. But you notice the direction. There's a direction away from yourself, right? Not to yourself, not to what, what kind of products am I getting here? What kind of edification am I getting? What kind of wise tips am I picking up? Not, not that those things aren't important, but there's a direction away from the self. Same thing with gentleness. You know, what, what is gentleness? Why are you not gentle? Well, you're not gentle because you're, again, you're, you're concerned with yourself. You're using your strength to kind of force your way. Gentleness is actually an awareness of the needs of people around you. And you're, and you're more concerned with their way and, and, and who they are and, and what they need. You're considerate of others. Again, notice the direction here. It's not this way, it's this way. What about patience? Same thing, right? To be patient is to be less concerned about your own timeline and more concerned about the timeline of others. The truly patient person has enough love for other people that they can go at their pace. I, I, uh, this week I was convicted about this. I, I, I am not known for my patience and um, it's, a, it's an area of weakness and, and sin in my life. But I, I was internally, I, don't, I hope I didn't act out on this, but internally I was really getting frustrated with the, some folks. And I was thinking to myself, this, is, uh, this would take me like four minutes to do. And why can't you do it? Why is this so hard for you? And I was just, I was just being impatient. And then later on, I, I was just meditating on this passage and thinking about these things. And the Lord really convicted me. And, and, and it, here's what it was. It was, you're not loving them. You're not loving them. The fact that they need this much time is, is, is to them. And if you really love them, you'll meet them with the time that they need. You notice the direction, right? If you've been catalambanoed by the love of God, who is incredibly humble. Think about the humility of Christ. You know, you might, you know, y'all might give a humble brag and be like, yeah, I was really humble this time or that time or that time. But, but none of you have left, I love the way Matt says it in one of his songs. None of you have ever been the theme of heaven's praises robed in frail humanity. None of you ever gone through that, right? Think about the, the gentleness of Christ. This is the one who has all authority and all wisdom and all power. And he's so gentle with us. Think about the patience. Think about the patience of our Lord. If you've been catalambanoed by that, then the way that we respond is in this way, with, with all gentleness and all patience and all humility. And then, of course, he concludes bearing with one another in love. I love this. You can see how this can't be sort of a product exchange. It has to be sort of a covenantal people thing. You know, you, you bear with one another in love that you love. You bear with one another in love that you're bound to. This is family language. This isn't marketplace language. If you have been ambushed by the immeasurably high and wide and deep love, then walk in a manner worthy to the calling that you've been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Do you notice the direction? You see the direction of the church here? It's 
It's away from yourself. It's towards others and eventually toward Christ. But secondly, this passage is incredibly helpful. And there, there's so much, we, we could have spent the whole series really on this passage. It's so helpful for me. And it's been so helpful for me, for me through the years. But the way of the church, kind of how the church operates. There's this interesting passage. Look at verse seven to me, with me. He says, but grace was given to each according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then there's this like weird part of the passage that I didn't understand at first. I had to think and study about this when I first started studying this, but let me just explain it to you. I'll read it real quick. It says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and saying he ascended, what does it mean? But saying that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So he, he gave us gifts and then there's all this ascension, descension language. What, what is going on here? This is a reference back to Psalm 68. Paul is, is quoting Psalm 68 here. And it's this idea of a king when he goes off to, when he goes and defeats his enemy, when he goes and has a big win and he defeats his enemy and he gets the spoils of victory. He, he gains the spoils of victory. What he does with those spoils is he takes them back, if you will. He, he descends from the place of victory and he gives the spoils to his people for the sake of the building up of the whole nation. So it's the king that's conquered another. He's taken the spoils of that victory. He's like reinvesting the gifts of victory, the, the spoils of victory back into the citizens of his country so that that country can flourish. That's the imagery that Paul wants you to kind of understand here. So what it's saying is, is that Christ has had such a victory. Christ has defeated sin and death. Christ has become the one who has all authority. And how he is now building his church is he is taking the spoils of victory. He's taking the gifts that he has and he's giving them to his church for the building up of the body, for the building up of this new humanity, this new people that he is calling together. We're gonna talk about that a little bit more in a second, but so this is such an incredible passage. So one of the ways that he's doing this, and again, this is so instructive for us, verse 11 is saying he gave, so one of the little gifts that he's giving to the church, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the son of God and to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there's, there's a lot here. Let me kind of break this down. Jesus is giving his church these gifts so that the kingdom can grow, so that the whole people can grow into the fullness of Christ. And one of the gifts that he's giving, one of the things that he's giving to the church are these particular leaders for the church. I like the way the NIV says it. It, uh, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. So you kind of see what Jesus is doing here. He's got his church. He's one on their behalf. He's defeated sin and death on their behalf. And he's saying, okay, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pluck some out. Some of you are gonna pluck out and kind of give back to the church for the building up of the church, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that the whole body can be built up. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna pull out these few out of the regular life of the church to serve the church so that the church may be built up so that the church may be equipped. 
couple of things here we need to notice. First, there is a pattern throughout the New Testament when, when Christ is talking about leadership of his church of plurality, okay? It doesn't just say he pulled out one guy to do this. It says there, there's, there's multiple people doing this for the church. There's some doing this, not, not the whole church, but some that are leading over, shepherding, carry, carrying out the duties of leadership for the church. There's different giftedness here, obviously. Some are teachers, some are more shepherding pastors, some are more prophetic. So there's different types of leaders, but there is a plurality of leadership for the church that God is desiring to build. And then secondly, there is a pattern for pastors and ministers that again is outward and not inward. What is the instruction? He gave some to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. There is an outward push of ministry. My job and the other 11 pastors here, we have 11 or 12 total. Some are staff, some are lay pastors, but, but our job, these people that have been kind of pulled out of our body to equip and stir us along as a body, our job is to equip the saints, to stir along the saints for the work of the ministry. And here's what this means. The church, like breathing, has this regular rhythm of gathering and scattering. This is, how the, this is how the kingdom of God is built up. We gather for edification, for worship, as we're doing right now, and then we scatter for ministry. We gather and we scatter for ministry. And, 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 and this is, y'all have heard me say this before, but I just, I can't say this enough. You are the saints. If you have been catalambanoed, by the fullness of the gospel and believe that God has sought you out in Christ to redeem you, to bring you into this kingdom life. If that's happened to you, then, then don't have a small view of who you are. You are the saints. You are the ones being equipped. You are the ones called. You know, I, we use this language a lot, but, but you are ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is someone who understands their identity. Right? You become an American ambassador, for example, because you're a good American. You understand America. You know what America is. You know what America's like. You've identified with America. You believe in America. You believe that America is going to protect you and going to be strong for you. And, and you believe in American culture, but you're an ambassador. You're sent out, as it were, on mission for America to represent America in another context for both the good of America and the good of the place that you have been sent to, that you've been called to. And, and I just want you to hear this. If you are in Christ, this is what the Bible says to you, that you are now an ambassador. That you have been, you have a new identity, but that you have been sent out, as it were, on mission to different neighborhoods and workplaces, to different schools, to different clubs and everything else. We, we scatter representing Christ for the good of his kingdom and for the good of those who we're ministering him to. The Bible says you are a temple. I love this language. You know what a temple is? In, in the ancient world, I mean, go around the ancient world. It is, it's amazing. These, these ancient temples, uh, I think I was telling our Tuesday night group a few weeks ago, I, I had a chance one time to go to Baalbek. Um, and it's in, it, it's kind of a dangerous place to go. It's, it's in uh, 
um, Lebanon, and um, it's, it's dangerous because like the Hezbollah headquarters are like right there, so don't go over there, but like go to Baalbek if you ever get the chance, and um, it's amazing, and there's the, the, the care and uh, time that was spent into building these temples. Why? Because the temples were sacred places. The idea of God at that time was so high, it was so transcendent, that the temple, the sacred place was the one spot where you could go and get a sense of God and get a sense of union with God. But what God has done in Christ, what, what, how the, the Bible talks about you in Ephesians 2, 1 Peter, many other places, is that you in Christ, filled with the Spirit, are the living temple of God, the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where in a physical earthly way, others who encounter you, have contact where you can actually get a sense of the transcendent God. And if that's true, what hope is there for Atlanta? What hope is there for the whole world if little temples are being scattered out throughout our city every week? I have a lot of hope that people can come to know the living God. I have a lot of hope that people can come and experience God's love for them and the salvation that is in God. You are the saints. You are the ambassador. You are the temple. My job, the other pastor's job, is to equip you for the work of the ministry, to, to help you along in this. I always call myself the temple repairman because I, I want you guys to remember, you're the temple. Get out there. Be a good temple. Represent Christ well. Remember who you are in Christ. Don't, don't as you're an ambassador out there, don't forget about America. Don't start living in the culture of the country that you're serving. No, remember who you really are and who you're really serving, but you're just sent on mission there. That's, that's my role, to equip you for the work of the ministry. But I think in so many of our churches, the model has been reversed. A friend of mine a few years ago sent me a video. It was a welcome video of a church. And he wasn't sending me the video because of the content of the video. There was something that funny, funny that happens in the video, but I was listening to the guy give the welcome of the church. And the guy said, look, your job is to give and invite your friends. And our job is to do the ministry. And I was reading that. And I was thinking, this is so backwards. This is so the opposite of what Ephesians 4 says here. In other words, it's saying, saints, your job is to equip us, the professionals, for the work of the ministry. When really what the Bible is saying here is, no, shepherds, pastors are equipping you for the work of the ministry. As you scatter, as you scatter out through, you are the ones that have been spirit-filled and called to be gospel lights. You know, when I first moved here, um, you know, people heard this guy's planting a church and you know, people have the perception that you're planning a church. What's the first thing you do? You buy land and build a building, right? A lot of people think that, you know? And so all these builders were like calling me and saying, hey, you want to get lunch? And so, you know, I, I like lunch. And so I'd go meet with him. But one time I was meeting with this guy and, you know, he's saying, you know, if I, we can ever help you out, da, 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 kind of give me the speech. And um, I said to him, you yeah, know, well, that's great. But, you know, well, tell me about your ministry. Tell me about you know, how, how do you minister to the folks in your office? How are you, you know, serving Christ in your office? And he said, well, you know, I don't really do that. I leave that up to guys like you. I focus on what I focus on, building buildings, and I leave the ministry to the professionals. 
And when this guy said this, I, I, I want to be very honest. I, my, my first reaction was just to be very sad because I don't know who's taught this guy, but this guy is so misled. This guy has such a small view of who he is in Christ. Such a minuscule view of who he is in Christ. He, he, has such, he, he, he is not taking hold of it and realizing that, that, that Jesus, the conqueror, has given him gifts. He's given him the spoils of victory for the building up of the kingdom. And so don't, don't you have that wrong perception of what this relationship is like? Yes, I mean, I would want you to be able to equip and invite friends and do whatever, but, but the main purpose here is for us as a body to be equipped and built up so that when we scatter, the gospel light goes with us. The temple fills the city. He didn't say this, but it was almost as if his kind of mindset was, you know, Christianity is just another product. If you want dry cleaning, go here. They're really professional. If you want groceries, go here. They're professional. If you want Jesus, go there. They're professional. They'll do a good job for you. That's not Jesus's vision. He isn't calling pastors to sell products. Jesus is creating a new humanity, a humanity that will change the world when they rightly understand what it is to gather and scatter well, which, which brings me to the final point, and that's the goal of the church. We talked about the direction of the church, the way of the church, the goal of the church. And again, I wish I could just spend the whole sermon on this because this is, if you really start to get this, it's mind-blowing. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Until we attain, verse 13, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Jesus, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see the goal here, right? You see what the Christian life is like? Christian life is not just like knowing something about Jesus or having some spirituality. No, no. What you're called to in Christ is to grow up into Christ, is to become, if you will, part of the body of Christ, to be so joined with Christ that you so identify with him that you, that you, in a sense, are him. It's an amazing picture. Jesus, the head, we, his body. When people experience Christ's covenant, what they should experience is Jesus. Jesus living himself out and working himself out through us, through his body. We're not just people who believe, we're people who attest to something. Our lives, our attitudes, our words, they're reflective of something. We grow up into Christ. This is why we talk about things like church membership. Because we want you to be committed to this, to, committed to this body that you've been called to. As Romans 12 says, we're, we're members of one another. We're part of a family together. This is why we need pastors, why we need people who are stirring us along toward this new life, toward faith, toward good deeds, 
People that are keeping watch over your souls. You know, I'm so grateful for this. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor, but I'm also a member. And I need this. I need shepherds. I need people to watch out for me. And so do you. You know, people, when they join our church, at first they're, they're a little like kind of weirded out when somebody calls you up and says, hey, how can I pray for you? How's your spiritual life going? If you join our church, our pastors are follow up with you. And they like say, wait, wait. But we, we care about you. We, we feel responsible for you. We want you to grow. We want you to be safe. You know, and, and look, so oftentimes a big part of my job and our job is to chase after wandering sheep. And some of y'all wander a lot more than others. You know, you know I was having lunch not too long ago with a guy that he was kind of one of those and I've just kind of been on him. And in a sense, it was discipline. I was correcting him. And I was like, hey man, you gotta, he knew. And he said, you know, thanks for coming after me. Thanks for staying on me, man. This isn't an exchange of products. This is a body. We're being a family. That's why we need discipline. It's why we need oversight. We're testing to something here. You know why the American church is failing right now? It's losing so much ground. It's not because we, you know, don't have enough resources. We have plenty of resources. It's not because people don't have access to scripture. We have plenty of access to scripture. I'm grateful for all these things. These are gifts. It's not because our religious liberty is being threatened. Even though I'm grateful for religious liberty, I'm grateful to all of these things. But the reason that we are failing is because our lives don't line up with what we say we believe. We're not attesting to these things. We may say we're believing these things, but we're not attesting to them in the way that we speak and in the way that we live. And you just go through church history. When the church, sometimes the church grows during times of great religious liberty and great abundance. Sometimes the church grows during times of great persecution and great hardship. But there's one common factor. The church grows, the church is strong when people's lives, when their holiness, when they're, when they're growing up into Christ, when, they, when their lives attest to what they believe. I, wanna, I, was just, I was trying to think about how to illustrate all this, and I thought, well, the best way to illustrate it is just a story from faithful Christians. Uh, there's this famous letter I've referenced before, some of y'all have heard of it, called the Letter to Diognetus. And uh, it's an ancient church letter. It's the time where Christians were being persecuted and people had so many questions about why Christians behave the way they behaved. And this guy, Diognetus, we don't have his letter, but he had obviously written a letter asking, what's up with the Christians? Why do they behave the way they behave? You know, people had all these questions about Christians. For example, you know, earlier we talked about um, the church being the temple. We're a living temple. We don't have an actual physical temple. And people thought that was strange in the Roman times. How do you worship God with no temple, right? So he, he asked all these questions and the, 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 the record that we do have is the response to him. And let's, I just want to read some of this that's so true about what a Christian that attests uh, to Christ is like. And then I'll make a couple of comments. It says, they live in their own countries, but as aliens... They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland and every fatherland is foreign. You see how outward focused this is, right? They're not claiming the rights of being a citizen. No, they're, they're acting like foreigners. They're, they're being humble. They're enduring with one another. There's no foreigners among them. They accept everyone but they almost live as if they don't belong to anyone, right? 
How about this part? It says they marry like everyone else and have children, but they don't expose their offspring. This was kind of the like second century version of like abortion. You'd actually have the child and then just leave it out and not care for it. Christians never did that. They cared for their offspring. They cared for their children. So they share their food, but not their wives. Romans were kind of notorious for being open with the bed, but stingy with the table. Christians were the opposite. So they're in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. I love this. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. You see what it's saying there? It's saying Christians are obedient to the law, but they actually go beyond the law. They don't just give the law eye service. (laughs) They actually seek to do what's right all the time, even in their private lives, even when there's no consequences for it. They love everyone and by everyone they are persecuted. They're unknown, yet they're condemned. They're put to death, yet they're brought to life. Even despite persecution, they're so hopeful. They they, they still love. I love this part. They're poor, yet they make many rich. What does that mean? It means that they're not first concerned with their own well-being. They're concerned with the well-being of others. They're in need of everything, yet they abound in everything because they love one another. They care for one another. They're dishonored, yet they're glorified in their dishonor. They're slandered, yet they're vindicated. They're cursed, yet they bless. They're insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers, but when they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. See how hopeful they are? How, How much they understand their identity in this other citizenship? And thus those who hate them are, still are hated, but they're unable to give a reason for their hostility. This attests to something. This shows that you're being called up into a new headship, a new life, a new identity, a new citizenship. And you say, well, how do Christians do this? How do Christians live like this? And don't you see, this is how Jesus is. You want to talk about the ultimate foreigner? Jesus left his father's side. He left heaven to make himself uncomfortable in a foreign land in order to serve us. You want to talk about generosity? Jesus is the ultimate in generosity. He who was rich became poor so that we in him might be rich. You want to talk about someone who loved those who persecuted him? Jesus hanging on the cross, forgiving those who are putting him to death. Jesus, even us, who while we were sinners, while we were his enemy, died for us. You want to talk about purity? Jesus was totally pure. You want to talk about the one who offered his life to those who cursed him? This is this, it's a new humanity. It's a new way of living. It's it's awkward to us. And the only way that you can see it, the only way that you can find it is is by seeing and finding Jesus who loves you and who's given his life to you. And as you begin to look to him and find identity with him, he transforms you as you find life in his body, in his people, the church. You're made into something new and he is pleased and glorified. So I invite you to bow your heads with me now as I just invite you to look to Jesus to look to Jesus, to see what he's done for you, to see how different 
his existence is than what we typically see and know. To realize that in him there's hope. Look, I invite you to, if, if you've not really given yourself to his people, to, to be a part of his body, then, then I invite you to that step, either here at Christ's covenant or some other church where Jesus is exalted and we are asked to follow him as a faithful church. But so Father, now I just pray where, where there is sin in our lives, you would bring conviction. Where there's pain in our lives, Lord, that you would bring healing. Other words, desperation in our lives, Lord, you would bring hope and you would do all of that through the powerful life and word of Jesus. Minister to our hearts now. Turn our, turn our heads back to hope in God, back to hope in your son, Jesus. Build this body up, Lord. Please, Father, build this body up into Jesus who is the head, not into some sort of good Christian product, but into a people who actually reflect the character and nature of Jesus in the way that we conduct ourselves, the way we love one another, the way we carry out his commands. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, we're, we're going to sing, and, and I just want to invite you, um, if, if you have a question or you'd like for me to pray with you, God's doing something in your life, I'd be so honored to meet you. I'll be standing back by the sound booth. Andrew Montgomery, who's one of our deacons, is actually going to be standing right over here by this doorway. Um, so we're going to stand, and, but as we stand, if you'd like to come and pray with us or, or ask us a question, we'd be so honored. Uh, and I do invite you to stand now as Matt leads us.